Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rollin' Bones. I'm Ryan Howard, and joining me today is a good friend of mine, a member of my very first D&D group, uh, one of the most fun and interesting players I've ever had the pleasure of playing with, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Austin Acoff. Oh, I don't know what to say after that kind of introduction. <laughs> Hi, well, I'm glad to be on here. It's cool to talk to you again, and good to talk about D&D. I'm always up to that. Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to be doing a lot of that, so uh, let's get started with these uh, these introductory questions, these questions I ask everybody. Okie dokie. So, first and foremost, Austin, how did you get into RPGs and D&D? Uh, well, I never, I wanted to get into it for a long time. It's always been one of those things that I grew up, it's like, it's always there on the fringe, but because I was never allowed to play it, because, you know, D&D is up the devil <laughs> and all of that jazz. I didn't, until I was old enough to drive myself, and I just happened to go on Reddit, and I was looking for a group. No one posted. Then a month later, Mo posted on there saying he, he had a slot for two two players. And then I said, hey, Lucas, we have a, there's, a, there's a D&D group playing tomorrow 45 minutes away. Let's go. And we did, and that's how it pretty much started. We had dabbled, I dabbled a little bit before, but it wasn't really, it never really got anywhere. Just like one session, maybe. Like basically character creation and other systems. Like Pathfinder. I don't miss it. I do not miss Pathfinder. But yeah, that's, and as far as RPGs goes, I've just, I've always grown up with. JRPGs and video games, so it was a perfect fit. They get the tabletop stuff. Yeah, I feel like for a lot of people our age, our, our first RPGs are video games, and then from there we get into kind of the, the hard stuff, as it were, with the, the tabletops. Yeah, since my first game was Earthbound, <laughs> which explains a lot, really. Absolutely. But it is, yeah, ever since then, it's like, RPGs are always my first go-to thing, so... And then some PC RPGs every once in a while, and now here we are, which is, I play D&D three times a week. That really, that is the dream. It's, it's just so fun. I just love that you can just do, I love not being constricted by his rules and structure as much. I love being able to just do some weird idea, and it works. Instead of just, oh, the game wasn't designed for that. That's my favorite part of D&D. And so for the next question, um, I think you might have already answered this, but what was your first game, your first RPG that you played, your first uh, tabletop RPG, rather? Uh, tabletop would be, it actually wasn't Pathfinder, technically, because we did one session of, I don't remember the name of it, but it was, it was one where you made a, uh, a demigod of, and like the whole character creation, which is, yeah, you just pick a god, and then just like, just go down the list of, you pick Thor, so you can choose these, blah, 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 that kind of thing. And the only thing memorable from that session, that, that one session we played, was the reason I came up through why our gods would be in the same place was because they went to Comic-Con.
I've never forgotten that because it's just it it's just it just works. Hey guys, you're never gonna believe this. I just saw Zeus and Odin hanging out over there by the swords table. <laughs> Hephaestus is over at the t-shirt booth. I heard Hades is giving out signatures this year. I thought he was banned. <laughs> I just love the idea of just... I mean, we're an original Comic-Con. <laughs> Especially since, for some reason... This Comic Con was held in an actual normal convention center. <laughs> so I don't know if there's like a thing where people could just walk in. Like, wow, look at all these cosplayers. <laughs> I don't know. It never got that far, though. But then after that, I just went into Pathfinder and then got around to D&D, finally. And now that's pretty much what I'm saying. Other than dipping into other systems for one shots or whatnot. So, Austin, uh, who was your first character? Oh, boy. I've... My first character... Because I don't remember the one for that God campaign, because it was literally one session for an afternoon. It was a... It was a gnome... Artificer who focused on bombs. And he had a beard big enough to look like a ninja mask. But it was a beard. <laughs> and I, I think his name was Kyle. He was just Kyle, the, the gnome who just running around throwing bombs. Because in Pathfinder, there's just one, one of the trees that's just like, you just have an infinite supply of bombs every day, equal to your intelligence modifier. It's just like, okay, I just throw a grenade, throw a grenade, I throw this other grenade, flip grenade, who cares? That is the only thing I do miss from Pathfinder, is they have so many dumb options for super hyper-specific builds. It's like, I want to be a paladin, but I want to have a gun. <laughs> and there's a subclass for that. Yeah, that was my first character, and I think that isn't surprising, honestly. See what you what you've done now is you made me picture the Kyle that we know, the Kyle from our group, yep. with a beard long enough to wear as a ninja mask, just throwing bombs at people. Yep, with a big dumb red gnome cap. Yeah, I'd... those bombs in that game were also so silly. Because like this one goes in a line explosion, this one goes in a cone somehow, and this one just explodes. Yeah, that was my first character, but as far as and then D and D wise, Barith. My We'll get into Barith in just a little bit. Yeah. He was the first one I really actually enjoyed. Mm hmm So you know, since you've brought up Barith and you you've hinted at it already, uh go ahead, describe your play style both as a DM and as a player. Okay, so I guess the easiest way to do play style as a player first would be one of the BT situations. I think the vampire with a... Yeah, so we got hired by the Black Dragon of the District to go investigate this vampire who's running a housing scheme. <laughs> Real estate scam. 
and we were trying to find the evidence out of them. And then we went up there, and this is still in like three or four sessions after BT came in, which for those who don't know, his name stands for bacon and tomato because he doesn't like lettuce. Which I stole that joke from Dot Hack Sign, but it works. Anyways, we went to the vampire's house. We got invited in, and he he was doing good, avoiding the questions and not incriminating himself. So he let me cast Zone of Truth on him because I thought, hey, Zone of Truth seems like a good spell. And then I don't remember exactly what I said. But I tricked him into thinking he said something. I said something else. And then he accidentally incriminated himself in his own truth. And then we're like, okay, we'll be back. Sorry to arrest you. So we went back, slept. Two, two of our party members got turned into zombies during the night. And then we went back to his house. And I found the deed to his house. And then I decided, wait a second. If I just cut out the name, his name on the deed... And then use mending on the paper. I could sign my own name to it. And then the house is mine. Because that's how real estate law works. <laughs> and to be fair, when we, the dragon didn't say, like, sure, you can have the house when we went back. So it did work. Just in a very silly way. And, and then we went to go fight him. And I killed two of our party members twice in that battle. I remember that. We called lightning. And then when we were coming the next day, when we were coming back, and the vampire lord ambushed me and Davern in the middle of the street, I was just like, hey, I just got to level 10. I want to try divine intervention because I love this banishment spell. And I asked uh, if Philibrim if he would banish the vampire lord permanently when we were in, we were just laughing at him from outside his house that he couldn't enter anymore and then it worked and apparently that made my the whole entire plane my house so he needed permission for to come in and we, yeah and then stuff happened but I think that pretty much is how I play d and is I focus more on like hyper-specific, like, can I do this ideas? Even if they don't work, even if it's suboptimal, I just want to see if I can do it. If it works, it's going to be amazing. If it doesn't work, it will be a good laugh. And then DM-wise, I'm, I'm actually a lot different DM-wise because I go way more deep into a serious storytelling there. So, I guess the best example would be a few a few weeks ago in my online campaign, <clears throat> they were chasing a, a sphinx that had escaped a prison, which in this setting, I decided that sphinxes, once they started, they had an area of control around them. So once they started saying a riddle, you have to answer the riddle, and you can't do anything else other than answering the riddle. So it has like this zone of control as long as it can come up for a riddle in time between you answering it and them not being attacked. Anyway, so 
it escaped and it dropped an object by the plane shift. And they pressed the button and ended up in a different world where we met a farmer from Ohio who picked them up in his pickup truck going down a highway in a plane full of ash and cinder and mining who had fell through his own interventional portal back in the 70s. And they get to this city, massive modern city with magic stuff going on. And they find out that their fancy world was made as a as a prison for all of the like deities and gods and supernatural creatures that are all a threat or didn't want to join in with a new like a new universal government type still back in the main sci-fi timeline. And so they're all shunted there, memories altered and all that. No one was allowed to enter or leave. And so they uh they were very confused by this, that their fantasy game is now a sci-fi setting, but in a fantasy world, but also a fa- sci-fi world. And then while they were walking around, they met, they ran into one of the characters, an older version of one of the characters, who had been possessed by a demon, demonologist to take some throne of a demon because that character was a tiefling. So he had some lineage for throne. And so that character, upon getting that throne being possessed, broke through the control, used the wish that you get for taking over a throne to go back in time, and then became a serial killer in the character's town that he was studying in. So the character would be driven out and never meet the demonologist. So it was this weird thing where it's like they had the character killed himself, his future self, who wasn't really his future self, and who had went back in time to kill a ton of innocent people to save him from killing more innocent people. It was just a very like it was a very heavy session. But it was really fun because they weren't really sure what was going on for a while. And it was fun to ro- role play, uh, for them to role play, like, what? We need to buy casual clothes. And then we had, I had to explain them that one of them bought an anime t shirt. Yeah, that's a lot of heavy stuff to throw at your party. Yeah, they're only like, because the, the whole campaign, uh, the whole campaign, uh, theme. Because they're only like level four when this is happening. The whole campaign theme is the burden of knowledge on those who cannot act upon it and whether you should or not. So I need to drop that really early because they can't do anything about it. And also, it doesn't really matter if they can do anything about it. Because their world is not being abused. It's not being like watched or anything it's its own thing it's just going as normal so we don't actually have to do anything but then we have this knowledge then we have this knowledge of this demonologist who possessed one of our party members but it hasn't happened yet and then there's a whole bunch of other stuff all of our characters i've tied it into that overall narrative structure they know things they probably shouldn't but also they can't do anything about it and it's just interesting to see what where we go with that 
So yeah, my playing style and DM style are very different. But also we play in test only on there, so it's a lot easier for me to type everything out. Now, Austin, and I won't be offended if your answer is not my game, but what is the most fun game you've ever played or run? Well, I, I don't... Like, your campaign was really fun. I really enjoyed that campaign. I think overall I enjoyed it better than the first one I was in. But also, I just really... Even though I enjoyed BT the most, BT was my favorite character. I still had a lot of fun in your campaign, especially with Felix and the stupid spoons. Animated yeah. spoons. Yes, animated objects is broken. Just so you all know, it's, it's broken. It's so dumb. It's the best spell. I love it, but it's horrible. <laughs> yeah, like, and about, this is the one I'm running right now is the only one I've been running long time. So. I see how that goes. I've been running it for about 14 weeks now only, so it's still going strong, but it's really fun. But I think I enjoy playing overall more. So yeah, I think yours probably would be, and not just because you're hosting a podcast, but also because I have just, I've really enjoyed your campaign. Well, I, I am honored. And uh, now... What is the least fun game you've ever played in or or run? So, I think we both share a few one-shots that weren't great. Yeah, so I won't go into those. So one time I did one that run that one one-shot that had like 10 people, three people I never even met, and I was sick that night. And I was really excited to do that one-shot because it was that murder mystery. And that didn't go great, but... It wasn't miserable. It was still fun. I just was sick, so I'm not going to count that. The real worst one was a one session that we played with a friend that we used to know back in school. And there was this little girl ghost in in this town who was trying to guide us somewhere. And that guy was being really creepy about the little girl ghost. And that just made everyone feel really awkward. I mean, he kept on doing it. It was like, stop. And after that, we just never invited him back. It was just, it was really awkward. So I think that was definitely the worst, like, feeling one. There's more annoying sessions or whatnot, one shots here or there. But as far as just, like, worst overall, probably that one. Just because it was awkward. It's kind of like you go online and you see the horror stories and you're like, I'm glad that's not me. It's like, oh, that was me. I mean, that was not, that was, that didn't happen to me. Not was me. Yeah, sometimes, like, when you go on Reddit and you read, like, r slash RPG horror stories, you read, like, five and you start to think, are these people all, like, is this all the same DM? (laughs) Yeah, and I was thinking, I was the DM for that session, too, so I was just like, I'm just going to. May I just make her disappear? And I was like, everyone else is not even following her. If it's just this one guy, it's really weird. Anyways. 
And uh, for this this final uh, introductory question, before we get into some other stuff, um, you are a man who has had some great shirts over the years. And so I'm going to ask you this question. If you could put anything on a T-shirt, what would it be? A miniature koi pond, fully functional. <laughs> Not just a design, but an actual koi pond. First of all, I've asked that question not just on this podcast, but for like a couple years on Digital Men. It was actually my co-host on there, Brent, who who came up with this question. I've never heard anyone give an answer like that, and you gave it with zero hesitation. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of that answer earlier. It was either a t-shirt that's a complete screen, so I could just have any video I want on my whole entire shirt at any time. So I can just be walking around and make people watch Evangelion or Godzilla. <laughs> but also, a koi pond would be amazing. I just look down, I just relax and look at the koi just swimming around, eat them a little bit from pocket. It'd just be cool. Oh, I love it. I love that. This is why I brought you on. <laughs> Glad at this point. So, as we've discussed a little bit, um, a lot of times you have made characters that have a, a gimmick to them, shall we say, but your characters have never been just a gimmick. There's always been a whole lot more to them. So... I guess, could you explain what, in your mind, makes the difference between a character that is just a gimmick and a character with a gimmick who's also a character? Yeah, so that's what I messed up on my first character with bears. It's like, I want to make him bears, 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 bear barbarian, but he's a dwarf, and his name is Bear Von Barrington. And I realized this is a gimmick because... I never actually planned any more depth than he likes bears. And he was really fun. Also, he had no depth because he only liked bears. So, like, for me, it's the same way I write my characters in my, in my books and stuff. It's I'm, I create their first core conceit or quirk. Like, I have a dragon slayer in one of my stories. He's an old, like, semi-retired dragon slayer. And he really enjoys his cell phone. He loves going on social media. He loves watching videos on it. He loves just, he loves just, he just loves his technology. And so his core conceit is he's a dragon slayer who loves his cell phone. But then it's like, I just layer on like, what is his favorite food? Where does he like to go? What kind of dragons does he not slay? And I just go down all this like relevant questions. And then I just compile a character that way. So they have a gimmick of he's a dragon slayer who loves his cell phone. But then there's a lot more I can pull from when I respond something with him. And that's how I do most of my D&D characters. I just start with the core conceit or gimmick and then just build outward so it doesn't feel like a gimmick. It's just it's their main identifying quirk. Because I remember, like, 
when I was first kind of getting to know you and getting to know your play style, you'd bring characters to the table, and I'd be like, you can't be serious with this. Let us not mention the one that never happened. Yep. Yeah, there was nope. there was one character... When we were first building my campaign, there was a character that Austin came up with that never never came about. But as he has requested we not speak about it, we will not speak about him. But then... About and then a day later, I came up with with Bron Bronzebeard. So. Yes, yes. The the next day, you came up with what for many of us has been your defining character. Yeah, because I, I enjoy playing BT the most. Bron is just you so just effective. I, that's the word I can choose from him. <laughs> just so effective at Braun... what he did. Braun was a transcendent figure. I'll put it that way. Yeah, and so like him, I was like, I want to make a, a lantern salesman. He sells lanterns and he makes lanterns. And he's going to be very pushy about that. But also, he has a slightly disturbing view, world viewpoint because of his upbringing. And it's like, he doesn't care if people die. He doesn't care if people don't need his lanterns. He wants to sell them because... He just wants to sell them. He wants them to be everywhere. And he feels like if he can do that, then it's essentially godhood if he has a common name for everyone. In everyone's house. That's what I meant. But he was fun. Horrible person, but fun. Hmm. Yes, and at a certain point, um, the the party at that time, they, they were captured by the big bad and his, his army. And, uh, they were all brought into this like chamber and the, the big bad was making a speech and he was like, you will, you will join me or you will be slaughtered or something like that. And Braun goes, I'll join. Yep. No hesitation. Just, uh, do you have an opening? <laughs> I was like, wait and... a minute, you what? <laughs> yeah. And then I brought old snake arms in after that, but And so at that point I thought Bron Bronzebeard had exited our lives. I was wrong. wrong. <laughs> you just kept on coming back up. Because just... I I don't remember I don't remember if he re entered my campaign. He was definitely brought up at one point, or multiple points. Yeah, he I don't think he ever actually like physically uh, appeared back in your campaign. But yeah, he was definitely referenced. But I was, at the time I was running a prequel campaign to the one that we were also playing where Mo was the DM. You guys have heard me talk about this campaign. This is the campaign where Cromwell came from. Um, and at a certain point, Bron Bronzebeard shows up again. And he had taken over the the capital city of the empire that Cromwell's family used to rule and basically convinced these people that he was a god because he was the bringer of light. <laughs> it was just... And I was so happy to see him back. I hate, I hate what I created in him, but it was so funny to see him back. And then he just kept on going. Yep, and even better, at the I, 
I've not talked about the end of Moe's campaign on this podcast yet, so so we, we should probably do that right now. Um, what happened was, basically, we talked about the... There was the city where uh, it was ruled by a cabal of dragons. And it was both chromatic and metallic. Well, most of the... All but one of the chromatic dragons were up to some shenanigans. They left the red dragon out of it. He had no idea what was going on. And then one of the metallic dragons was in league with them. And what happened was the green dragon was the head of it all, and he basically turned himself into Tiamat. It was not Tiamat, but it was it was basically Tiamat. Uh, non-copyright infringing Tiamat. Yes, it was non-copyright infringing Tiamat. And so we, I mean, by this point, we're level 20. All of us who are in this party, we're, we're level 20 and we're getting ready. We're geared up. I was gung-ho to just go in there and kick his ass. Because everyone else is like, oh, I don't know if we can do it. And at that point, I was like, no, Cromwell has a dragon scale coated firebrand and a or dragon scale coated flame tongue and a dragon scale coated frost brand. Yep. Big old boss fight. Yep. We're going to go in there. <sighs> we're going to kick his door down. And then at that point, uh, all the characters that you had played in that campaign that were still alive also showed up to help us out. Yep. And then things happened. Yep. And then we get there. And uh, Kaltarian, who is a half-elf bard, played by our good friend and uh, fellow DM, Ashley, who will at some point be on this podcast. Um, she turned on us. <laughs> it, was very, it was a long decision, a long series of bad decisions between Bruce and... Gotarian. Yeah. Yeah, our our dragonborn paladin of Bahamut decided he was going to fake turning on his god, but didn't bother to tell his god that he was doing that. So he fell. He became an oathbreaker. <laughs> oh, no. And he didn't survive through one round of combat. Yeah. And it's, we didn't even fight Tiamat. I mean, not Tiamat. <laughs> right. Because at this point, at this point, he turns, Kaltarian turns, and then one of Austin's former characters also turns. Yep. My kobold. Yep. Your kobold so, monk. He was like, I mean, we, if we if we if we give up, then maybe less people will die because he was stupid. <laughs> And then what everyone forgot was that me and then our friend David, who had a uh, halfling uh, arcane trickster rogue named Piper, we were the DPS. So we were the, the majority of the damage output, aside from AoE spells from uh, Kaltarian. And, uh, oh god, um... Why did I just blank on Joe's character's name? Uh, Daverin. Daverin, yeah. So they could put out AoE, but we were the DPS. 
And so they got into a fight with us, and we wiped the floor with them. Yep. It wasn't even fair, really. Because I was using I was using the revised ranger, and uh, I didn't even have spells at that point. I uh, given up my magic for a different story that we'll tell at a later date. So I was using the revised spellless ranger, and then had a little bit of a tweak from Mo as well. But I was between me, Piper. And a couple of Austin's other... You, at that point, were at literally playing on both sides. Yeah, I had four character sheets in front of me. Yep. It was really fun. And then I had one in the back that no one knew about. Yep. But we were able to defeat the traitors, and right as... The rest of us are foolishly shaking our fist at not Tiamat. Who does Cromwell get contacted by... But Braun, Braun's beard. And then, yeah, I remember, like, Braun can save the day. He has wish. <laughs> and then I messaged you. I gave you the, the question of whether you want the world to be destroyed or do you want everyone to, be, to leave the world? Everyone good. At that moment, and, and you, you witnessed this, at that moment... I was so upset with how this had transpired because, and it, this was not just my character that was gung ho to take this thing down. I was this, this campaign had been going on for almost three years at that point, maybe even three years. And I was ready to just go out in a blaze of glory and so the first answer I gave was destroy it. But then I thought about it for a little bit and I said, no, okay, teleport all the good people off. And then, yeah, I nameked. I, I dragon balled everybody away to a new planet. Except with a caveat that I got, that Braun Brother got to choose the new economy for that world. And. We just left not Tiamat there, and all the evil people are back. Well, all the evil people Braun deemed as evil. Which, when you look back at that, that might be a little bit messed up. But it worked out, kind of. Sort of. It was memorable. That's the word. And then uh, the, the party members who turned on us uh, apparently spent eternity burning in the hell of disappointment. Yep, not even tortures, disappointment. Just constant disappointment. That'd be horrible. But at least most of my characters got away, like Gatecrasher. Good old Gatecrasher. Yeah, Gatecrasher Gatecrasher was an interesting story, and that actually brings up one of my one of my biggest failures as a player still learning the game. So Austin, why don't you go ahead and, and hold forth on the Gatecrasher story? Oh boy, okay. So, it was right after BT had died. I needed a new character, and because BT had died, Atri died, not just me leaving. <laughs> and I was like, I want to play the Warforged. He's going to be a paladin. I've never played a paladin. He's going to be lawful good. He's going to have heard about Cromwell in the 
parties and be like super hyped to go find him and fight for justice. Big good guy. Because he'd been a prison guard. And so we found you guys. And we ended up in uh, the, the not the not Aragon ripoff fourth city. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we ended up in this place that I completely ripped from Christopher Paolini's uh, somewhat dubious classic Aragon. Dubious is the right word for that. Pretty much... Pretty much the only original idea he had, I stole. And that was the city of Farthendur, which is a mountain inside of another mountain. Where the dwarves lived, and I stole that, and that's where we were. Yeah, so we went there. And they had been attacked under by drow and stuff. You know, the usual skirmish stuff between those two types of civilizations. And we went down, and we're originally going down there to attack the drow and try and save the dwarves because the dwarves were our allies. But then we get there and we're talking to the matriarch. And then I, as gatecrasher, decide, what if we did peace, though? And I, through a natural 20 and a plus 8 in persuasion and a good argument, like, okay, how about this? We all meet up at the Dragon City, a neutral party, with delegates from each side, and we negotiate peace. And the are like, okay, that sounds good to me. <laughs> and you guys were very upset about that. Because I, I, I didn't consult the party or anything. I was like, we can make peace with him, so we probably should. Like, that was Gatecrasher's logic. Is we can do it, so we should. And then we went back. Then we we had one of the driders with us as like a delegate. And then we got into discussion, which lasted like what, three hours almost? It was a debate about whether we should betray the drow. Like one Quotarian would like the drider could be watching for the matriarch and relaying information while we were talking about plans to betray them in front of us in front of her. And yeah. Gatecrasher just did not want to betray them, and Cromwell was very gung-ho about betraying them. Yeah. Yeah, my my neutral good ranger was all on board with this betrayal. Because <laughs> you hated the drow, and you're like, yep. we can't trust them, and Gatecrasher's like, but they want to give it a chance. Like, and then he was crushed because he, he like, has followed you guys as heroes. And he just, at the end of like a three-hour debate, which was exhausting, but it was really fun. It was really great night at D&D. Gamecrasher just left, and he was going to go warn the drow that you guys were going to betray. And then he met the drow on the way there, and we like, we heard about, we heard you were trying to save us. You can leave. And then the war happened. Okay. It was really hard because Gatecrash has only been in that session in that campaign for three or four sessions. And he made such a big impact because of that situation. It's just such a good, like, that's what I love about D&D, that one night is just like, he just left a party and he has completely legitimate reasons to. That was really fun. Yeah, that, it was hard, though. That pair of sessions... 
was some of the best D&D I've ever experienced. Because we had that one where even though I was at fault, both in and out of character for what happened, <laughs> that that whole situation ended up being really fun. And then because of that betrayal, uh, the drow basically waged open war with us and the dwarves. And the next session was just a gigantic battle. Yeah, where you went Dynasty Warriors on them. Yeah. Yeah, it was a... Yeah, that's, that's the kind of sessions I chase when we're playing D&D and campaigning it. And, like, I'm running it. That's what I hope to have. Because, like, when I run the campaign, we only have combat, like, once every seven sessions. <laughs> we rarely have combat. Because I don't like running combat unless we get into a fight. I don't want to, like, and now you fight the bandits on the road. I only like fights that they purposely start or they can't get out of. But yeah, it was just that's the kind of D and D I always try to go for. Is that gate crasher session? But yeah, fun fact for those of you who like to who like to bag on rangers, if you're ever in a large battle situation and you're a hunter ranger and you picked whirlwind attack, <laughs> have fun. It was yeah, it was literally just dynasty warriors your way through <laughs> yep. the spinning top <laughs> through an army. That was real fun. Turns out there's a lot of people within five feet of each other in a battle. <laughs> yeah, especially when you have multiple attacks. But yeah, that... <clears throat> Let's see. Um, you did a series of one-shots with us that were actually set in the universe of one of your books, right? Yeah, I've done that. The campaign I'm also running is presented in my book setting. But yeah, I've been one-shots in that as well. Gotcha. Tell me a bit about kind of what it's like to run people through the setting of your book and how you how you go about doing that. So I know a lot of people, that's like something you hear a lot about, like the author DM who wants to self-insert and like, this is my, this is my story. It is railroad people super hard. But like my setting has a really weird, not weird, really weird, but has a very specific point of creation where I had all these individual stories, fantasy, sci-fi, modern day, cryptid stuff. And I was like, what if I just combined them all together? As made this one setting, which is how I have a modern sci-fi setting parallel to a fancy one that's in the same setting. So it's already modular enough for any story I want to put in there. So I've, it's really fun to have people just go in and like, oh, the story I haven't you, I haven't written yet. I can let you guys experience a part of it and use that as part of the campaign. And I try not to fall into a trap of like, this all has to be canon because it doesn't have to be for any of my stories. Just I want to see what you guys do in something I made. And that's what I find fun is I present my is I presented my cake and I want to see what you guys do with it. If my cake was really weird and you weren't sure about eating it, yeah, that's something. Uh, that's something Tim Matthias and I actually talked about on the last episode. Um, in his 
in his game that he's doing for his podcast, he had a player ask him about if there's a black market for a certain thing, and that made him stop and think, wait, is there a black market? And so he had to kind of answer all these questions in his head, and he said that's definitely something that could benefit any author who's running a D&D session in their setting. Yeah, that is also a fun thing, is when people just want to flesh out the world a little bit through just their own play, playing or questions. Like, I have one character who uh, who wanted to be in one of the elf mafias that's in my setting. So I just had him make his own little mafia family. That's like a the Crossing Ravens. And they're just like bridge toll, toll people. They just hold you up at bridges and toll you. And there's like, this is fun. Now, now I have a now I have a consistent like theme for or other mob families like verb or adjective animal. <laughs> and it works. Now, uh, going back to kind of some of the stuff that we've, uh, we've done together, I've mentioned this already on the podcast and I'm probably going to ask every single one of you who's in the group to comment on this. From your perspective, what happened and what went wrong during the Deadlands incident? Oh. <sighs> that was a bummer. That whole thing was a bummer. I was so excited to play my character. Because I was playing the uh, Jojo the Dog Boy type character. Full fur, one-armed gunslinger. And I was like, this is going to be fun. And it started off really well. Everyone's getting into it. And then I feel like the system wasn't at fault, at least. It was just for some reason people got hooked onto the wrong a few people got hooked into the wrong aspects of characters in a weird way, just like this person is wanted, so he must be arrested. It's like, but I mean, but also it's, it's that weird thing. It was like, you know, when you're having a party come together, it's like, we know we actually probably shouldn't be able to work together as a group in character, but also we're playing a game together outside of character. So we need to make it work. So that was just really weird. It's just like a weird disconnect. To me, and I'm not really sure like what exactly went wrong there, but I think it definitely was just a thing of our attention. Some of our attentions were uh, diverted to to the goal fast enough, so we got distracted with other things. Yeah, that session. Um, this was the first time I'd ever run a session that was not. 5th edition D&D, and I picked Deadlands Classic, which those of you who know RPGs know, kind of a crunchy system. Not the crunchiest, but it's it's crunchy. And uh, the party size was ridiculous. I I don't know what possessed me to think I could do this, 
but we had our usual D&D group. Plus uh, Kyle, who was new at the time. And then uh, one of the other players brought someone with them. And all of those people were playing. So we had, I think, nine members of the party. Yeah, and there was a new system that we all had to learn. And Yep. Yeah, no one had played Deadlands before. I was the only one who'd played any variation, and I'd actually played Deadlands Reloaded. Um, and then one person at the table had never played any RPG before. Well, I played with Parker Chips. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep, there was there was lots of playing with the poker chips. There was poker chips that I think are still being found. Actually, no, they actually moved into a new apartment, so all the poker chips have been recovered, I'm pretty sure. I think... Because they had to I move thought, that couch. I think you were missing one by the end of that. Somehow. One was just gone. That sounds right, but yeah. That wasn't... That was a rough night. Which, that was an unfortunate uh, thing that happened a few of your one-shots. Something happened. Mostly yeah, I'm just going to give new DMs a tip. If you have a one-shot planned, and you have specific things you want done in that one-shot, just start the one-shot assuming that the party already knows each other. Yeah, that's a that seems like a pretty good idea. Like it, when I did my murder mystery one, it worked that nobody knew each other because it worked as far as the plot. But if you need them to do a goal, you probably should be like, you guys all came into town on the caravan or whatever, and you knew each other. Yeah, starting a campaign, you need that introductory, you start in a tavern type situation. But a one shot, they all know each other. Just just do it. Yeah. Oh, which now reminds me, it's just a small segue. I love the idea. I love the, how everyone does the, uh, Y'all start in a tavern type thing differently. For the campaign I'm running, I did, uh, you all end up in this small mountain town, and it's a festival tonight, so you end up at a fish fry, and you all ended up at one empty table in the tavern. Now here, have some fried fish and vegetables. And then they just sat awkwardly and didn't say anything for five minutes to each other until the waitress had to break the tin, break the ice. That was fun. It really captured the awkwardness of being sitting at the table of strangers. Anyways. Now, Austin, have you ever, in, in your playing or your DMing, encountered a player who did not understand the fundamental, you're playing D&D, you have to actually agree to do the adventure hook? Uh, let me think for a second. Not, not particularly, no. Like, everyone's, in fact, I feel like I've run into more people who expect more adventure than what I usually do. Because I usually do very RP heavy stuff. Rather than, let's go to a dungeon. But I haven't run into anybody who's just like, I'm going to go be a murder hobo or whatever else. Yeah, so I can't say I've ran into that. Other than the one shot guess 
Because I have, I've got a situation, well, I had a situation. Uh, this player actually learned their lesson from this. Um, the first session that I ran with the new group, like I said, I've got pretty much all new players. And uh, one of them was playing a, a war cleric, or she, she's still playing a war cleric. And they were approached by Cromwell, oddly enough. He's still kicking around. And they were uh, basically given a mission, and that mission would take them to the start of Lost Minds of Fandelver, which I'm running them through right now. Um, and it had to do with this this basically looming war that was going to... It was basically a looming world war, so the entire world was locked in a cold war. And this war cleric did not like this mission because it didn't have anything to do with starting a war. And she kept going on and on. She's like, I want to see the bodies piled in honor of my god. And Cromwell's like, by doing this, you're going to be helping the war effort. She's like, I don't want to be helpful. And so we had this conversation back and forth. I kept like upping the amount of gold I would give them. And then finally I just went, okay, okay. Do you want to play D&D? And that's what finally got her to say, oh, yes. I said, this is the hook. This is this is the start of the D&D. You have to say yes to this or nothing happens. For some reason, this is the start of the D&D. Makes you really, really cracks me up. And and this is where the D and D starts. Yeah, that weird thing is like you have to try and get that adventuring hook in. And like for me, since I do when I start my campaign, I start a backstory like I can tie this into the main narrative and theme. But it's like, how do I get them to stay together? <laughs> so I have them all cursed. They're, they're cursed by a ghost. Everybody went, went to go fight the ghosts, and everyone went to go travel together out of town to go find the ghost's son, and that was a good enough glue for a while, and now they don't need it anymore. I kind of like just forcing them together a little bit so they can play the D&D, and then they can not have to worry about organic coming together. And that actually... See, that that was a problem of role play and that player not knowing the, the, the balance between role play and going along with the party. And so I wanted to kind of ask this question of you. Have you ever as a player felt that you needed to compromise a little bit on your character just to keep the, the cohesion of the party together? Yeah, which is why I lost my characters earlier on when I was playing. They left a party because I wasn't sure how to balance that yet. And then once I figured it out, it's just like I just got to make compromises. Then in a Curse of Strata campaign I was in that just finished actually this weekend, which was real fun. We I was playing a, a rogue who was just an expert trap finder, and so 
I wanted to go invade Strahd's castle by myself and find all the stuff we need because I know I could. And it, I felt bad because then I had to make the rest of the party just sit in a voice chat for two hours hanging out while I was just peeing around the castle. And it's like, I know I should be like, let's go figure out a way for us to go in together. Also, it was the most efficient way to play the D&D at that point. So, yeah, it's definitely a weird balance. Sometimes it's like you have to make the suboptimal choices or not what my character would do just because you're playing with people. Which I guess if you're playing a one-person campaign, it's great for that. <laughs> yeah, I've heard about people playing, like, one-on-one -on -one campaigns. I've never seen how that would work. Yeah, it's just, it feels like there's nothing to bounce off of. It definitely would take a dedicated pair to do that. I feel like two people at minimum would be the most minimum it needs to work well. But I guess it can work at one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, because there's... There's a lot of cool stuff that comes from having a group and having different ideas come up. Now, sometimes that can be... Uh, sometimes there are too many ideas bouncing around. Um, uh, I think I know what you're thinking about. And this leads us to the saga of the folding boat. Stupid boat. I love that dumb boat. So once again, Austin, from your perspective, tell us about the folding boat. So we need, I got a vision because we had done the mirror mate, the mirror mate uh, challenge. And he would give us a question, a truthful answer to any question. And I asked him as BT, where's the ship that sunk that I was serving on? Because he wanted to go dive down and get the treasure out of it. And we got the location, and I was like, hey, we should go get some treasure. I'm sure it's a dive down and we get some treasure. It wasn't, but. <laughs> and then we were at the docks, and in, and we spent three hours debating how to get a boat. Maybe we should steal one. Maybe we should buy one. Maybe we should, like, contract one. Maybe we shouldn't just, <laughs> just like, it just went down the list. It's like. We could do this. We could do that. We could. And then Mo finally stepped in and said, you have a feature as a sailor to get free passage on a boat. <laughs> you had to step in after like three hours when he was just done. <laughs> he was just done with us. And we're like, oh, we've had a boat the whole time. <laughs> that was really fun, but it was very just like, those are the kind of sessions you don't want to happen, but also really fun after the fact. And yeah, that, that led to one of, uh, another one of Moe's great disappointments as a DM. The, my epic level bad guy, unfortunately, was not as epic as I thought he was. <laughs> Who doesn't love killing the villain before they get to do anything? It's very fun. You... You've mastered that. You've done that 
I believe three times now. I think that might be right. Because you did it to the vampire. Yep. You did it again when we had to fight the Rakshasa, the vampire, and Halak Mott all at the same time. Yeah, and that was a time when I'd use Wish, and I like, I'm going to cast Wish, and I pulled out a, a two-page paper of what my Wish was. <laughs> and everyone just looked at me. And then you did it to me with Naziri Red Dagger, the the chief assassin. <laughs> I still feel bad about that one because since I was uh, Kinku, and he he was bending down like I want to slit your throat if you blah blah blah, and then I turned to stone, so he's just a statue bent down really low <laughs> with a dagger out. <laughs> yeah, that was one of those. That was one of those moments I thought it was going to be, uh, like, they spent their entire session in the market trying to get the attention of this head of the evil Emperor's Assassin's Guild. And finally they'd achieved it. They had a fight with some assassins. They they killed them. And Austin's Kinku is walking around the market and I was just going to have him appear for a split second, hold a dagger to his throat and say, you want my attention, you've got it, and then disappear. <laughs> like, and just end the session with him having appeared very briefly and then disappeared altogether. And uh, as soon as I go, you have my attention, you've got it, Austin goes, divine intervention, rolls, rolls what he needs, he's a statue now. <laughs> and I just got it too so I'm just like I might as well try it it's a 10% chance I, I, and I never expected it to actually work but it seems to work when it when it's just it's amazing to work really good timing on that part yeah I felt bad about that part because cause after I did that and I could just see in your face Disappointment, and you you look like you're about to get up and just take your laptop and just leave. After, <laughs> like you just needed some air. That that honestly is one of my biggest weaknesses as a DM. I wear my emotions on my sleeve. <laughs> when a player does something, just minor that completely like sinks the boat. Like, th this is going to be so epic, and then a player just counteracts it in a split second. I I'm, I just get so visibly deflated. <laughs> you do. And, like, I, I did really feel bad about it, but it was just so funny that it worked. And now he's the statue, and we met him later. Just as a statue, and it shoved in the corner of the villain's lair, because he couldn't figure out what to do with him. Poor guy. We never even got to fight him. And then I'm I'm going to set the stage for this, and I want you to tell the story of your 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 two page wish spell. But I'm I'll set the stage for it. Um, and this is back in Moe's campaign, and this was probably right around the midpoint of the campaign, maybe towards the end. 
but we had been consistently haunted by this cabal of evil that consisted of Halak Mott, who was the vizier to Cromwell's evil emperor dad. And then a Rakshasa. And then um, the vampire that Austin's character BT had a rivalry with. The vampire that ultimately ended up beheading BT. And so we face them down. And Austin, after BT had died and after the thing with Gatecrasher, Austin had brought in a Hobgoblin Bladesinger wizard. Uh, What was his name again? Markev Kikimura. Yeah, Markev. And so Austin had the wish spell, and I will now turn it over to Austin. Yeah, so... We'd, we'd leveled up right before going into that boss fight, the session before. And I knew I needed, I took Wish because I, I knew that Wish was probably going to be the deciding factor. But I was like, what should I wish for? And so I decided you can probably like channel a Wish through paper. Like you write your Wish down and you channel it through there. That made sense to me. Because you can do it with spell scrolls. So I wrote out a physical two-page paper on my wish. And it was even just like legalese, just in the eyes of this beholder, and blah, 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 blah. Just like, just every every counter just to the wish not being granted within there, just like, in the case of <laughs> C Appendix A, which I had multiple of those. And the wish was to make all the villains switch to true to lawful good and lose all our magic, which would have just completely just ruined them and then the fight and so I cast a wish, and the dean was like, "You can't he read over my two page paper it's like you this is too much." It's just too much for a wish. And then we RP'd it through, like, a god of wishes. Like, you can only choose one half of this wish. And so we chose the half of where we could give up magic to make them non-magical. So the vampire would just become mortal and then just die because from vampire stuff because he's dead. Rakshasa would just disappear because he's all magic. And then the poor lich is just an old guy now. And that was really fun. It was a really cool session. Also, I don't think anybody expected me to actually pull out a two-page sheet for my wish. Like, because I had a folder. I was like, okay, so your wish is going to be inside like a sentence, right? Nope. I read the whole contract out. <laughs> I love I love doing that. It's like, I love props in D&D and writing stuff like that. It's just fun. Yeah, that was a that was an odd situation because we had to like like Austin said, in order for them to lose their magic, some of us had to give up our magic as well. And I believe it was like it was like two full casters and one half caster needed to give up their magic. 
And so I, as a ranger, was a half-caster, so I gave up mine. Austin gave up his. And then the warlock in the party also decided to give up his magic. But Lucas, for some reason... And I, I can never figure out why, because, like, two sessions later, he immediately missed this character. And he's always talked about wanting to bring him back. But he decided not only to give up his magic, but to make it so that he could not use any magic items anymore. Yeah, magic will just fizzle out near him. He's going to walk the anti-magic field. Yeah, I don't... Exactly know why he. I think he just chose that at the time because it fit so well. It's like it's kind of like his mini redemption arc. Like he'd always been kind of a jerk sometimes with Alistair, and like this is his chance to do something like ultimately just like change the good for the good of the world. But it's like, oh man, now I can't play him anymore. He was going to bring another character to that campaign but he ultimately ended up dropping that campaign yeah he ended up not playing anymore that campaign he didn't come back for a while but that's a whole different thing as i remember we were carrying around an iron flask that had his character in it but we never yeah yeah, we we never opened it yeah you're just hanging out in there because it was like it was a celestial it was some kind of celestial sorcerer yeah it was a sorcerer the cleric sorcerer thing. Yeah, he just hung out in that flask forever. The one that David didn't know he was playing. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. That was fun. So we, have, we haven't talked much about David on this show, but uh, David, from what I can gather, and he will probably tell you this himself, David is like the the archetypical murder hobo. <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but yes. Like murder hobo and that all he cares about is I want to just wreck stuff. That That's why he plays D&D. He wants to deal massive amounts of damage. He wants to play the Dungeons and Dragons part of Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he he's an... I believe he goes all the way back to second edition AD&D. And that, from what I gather, is the prevailing mindset of that era of D&D. So that, that's his play style. And he got very bored. He played a cleric in my campaign. He got very bored not dealing as much damage as he did as Piper. And so we get into Ashley's campaign, and she did a very cool thing where we all woke up with no memories, and so we didn't know our classes, we didn't know our stats, didn't even know what level we were. Yeah, and for the longest time he had no idea what he was playing because we couldn't figure out his spells, and he was very disappointed when he found out he was a healing sorcerer and not a big damage sorcerer. Yep. Because that was a situation a lot of us actually ended up being very happy with what we were. Yeah, I was Except very for David. Him. And also, Lucas wasn't very happy with his. But yeah, that campaign is a whole different ride, different type of ride. But the usual D&D is very fun. 
And that campaign, I, I sadly had to leave because I got married and moved out to Nashville. But I was expecting my exit from that campaign to be like a tragic, heart-wrenching moment. And I was very relieved that it didn't end up being one. It was very close to with that thing we were fighting. It could have gone very bad, very fast, but it ended on a very good, bittersweet note for you. Great last session for you. Hopefully. And uh, let's see. Oh. Last time, because Tim was a huge fan of the show Parks and Rec, we ended up placing Parks and Rec characters on an alignment chart. I want to do something similar with you but not with a TV show. Good, because I've never seen Parks and Rec. Gotcha. Do you think we, between the two of us, we could place our entire group on an alignment chart? Yeah. I say you would be lawful neutral. Because you try and stick to the rules and to the spirit of D&D, but also you can dip a little in each way. Generally, you're very mellow. Let's see... Lucas would be uh, chaotic neutral. I feel like all of us would be neutral something. <laughs> Ashley would be chaotic good. Yeah, I I definitely I definitely put Ashley at chaotic good. Yeah. So, what do you think about anyone else? Let's see. Because um... I don't want to name my own or call myself. <laughs> What I think I would be. Because <laughs> I don't know if our lines were messed up there. I'm having trouble placing you, actually. <laughs> I I don't know. You know the rules very well. And you you very much play within them. Also, I play within them in a... But yeah, you kind of like you mess with them a little bit. So I I kind of want to put you in the neutral column. I don't know that I'd call you neutral evil cuz I don't think you have any ill intent. I'd I'd say personally like true chaotic. Even though that's not technically on the alignment chart. I which I think it's silly that there should be a true one for everything, but anyways. True chaotic. Yes, we will bend the rules. Which I do anyway, so it works. Because I try not to be a jerk or abuse the rules. And I try to always have fun. That's always my main goal is everything I do is I want I want to have fun. And I want everyone else to have fun with what I'm doing. But also, that means that I have a wide gambit. <laughs> Just whatever floats my boat that day. Let's see. Um, David, I'm going to put David at neutral evil. Yeah, that fits. I was thinking either that or law for evil. Or he really likes mechanics, but also he really likes murdering stuff. Yes. And the reason I put him at neutral evil is because I feel like a lot of the discussions with David go, David going, can I do this? Mo, Ashley, or me going, no. 
him going, but what about this? Us reading it back to him and him then going, but it would be cool. <laughs> yeah, methods. That makes sense. And then, uh, I guess all we're missing is, let's see, Mo, Kyle, and Joe. I'm going to put Mo. I don't know if Mo's going to love this or hate this. I'm going to put Mo at lawful evil. Yeah, I would agree with that. Because he very much loves his mechanics. Yep, he loves his mechanics, and he loves messing with us. Yeah. And then when things... And also he's a min-matcher, so I always put min-matchers. <laughs> Sorry, Mo, I always put min-matchers in the evil category. Even if they mean well. Because that can really mess with a party balance. And when things don't quite go the way he thought they would, he can turn vengeful. Yeah. And then Joe. True neutral. Yes. (laughs) Joe is true neutral. Because, like, when when you look at my characters and play style, it's just like, Okay, you you expect something weird or crazy from me, and then from Joe, it's just like I don't know. It's a weird like fog, <laughs> and then he just comes out of nowhere or something. Yeah, we've we've not spoken much about Joe on this podcast. Unfortunately, I didn't really get to know Joe all that well until right before I left, which is one of the like greatest regrets of the D and D group in my my opinion is that I didn't get to know I got to know pretty much everyone else really well but Joe I didn't really get to know until right before I left but Joe was always pretty quiet um he'd come in he'd play he'd leave and we assumed that he'd be the one who'd play for a little bit then at some point life would happen he'd drop and he'd never come back but then Joe started doing really interesting things. Like at stirring. Yep. <laughs> Infamous asses. Once my campaign started, Joe was playing a uh, Dragonborn Battlemaster fighter. He put intelligence as his dump stat. And because of this, he believed he was the greatest wizard of all time. Because he knew the greatest spell of all time. Throw hand axe. It's very powerful. It never lets down. This is the character who, when I was talking with Tim, I told him, uh, this is the character who ate a psychedelic mushroom and... The vision quest that I had him go on after that was him, his character seeing us at the table and seeing us roll the dice and movements in accordance with our dice rolls. Yeah, that, it was very, that was a very fun character, especially because he became king yep. of his own town later. Yep. He took over a town, named it Balasar, after himself. Which was really funny when we found out when he found out that Balasor was an extremely common dragonborn name in D&D. Yep. 
Which I nobody think it's in the. I think it's in the PHB. Yeah, it is. And so there just there ends up being a lot of dragonborn named Balasar. It's a good name. Yeah. And he constructed a throne out of two buildings. As one does. And then we have Kyle. Again, maybe this is controversial. Kyle, I'm sorry. Chaotic evil. I agree with this. <laughs> Such after he scammed a, a poor town out of their money. Yeah. By trying to be an ambassador. Mm. He decided, instead of... He decided at the Temple of Bahamut, instead of giving up his weapon... To and and keep in mind, we were going in there to grab an extra special weapon that only he could use. Instead of giving up the weapon that he had, he decides instead he's going to cut out the gland in his body that produces his breath weapon. And you had to cut it out because and he made me do it. <laughs> and you didn't even roll well. No, I didn't. My intelligence was slightly higher than every. I, I my intelligence was like a twelve. You had the highest. I did course. not have. I did not have a high intelligence, but they made me do it, and that medicine check was not a high one. I think I rolled like a eight. Yeah, and you took a lot so of I had damage. Like a ten total. Yeah, and then, and then we got up there and was like, oh, I could have just given up my weapon. We're like, yeah, I guess we we could have. Which is funny because I gave him a suggestion. I suggested he cut out his Blair weapon. But then he did it. I just thought. Well, he was about to cut off his tail. Yeah, that was. Chaotic Evil definitely fits him. Mm -hmm. And then there was the whole. Uh, when we were using Roll20 for a while, there was the whole never-ending list of nicknames. Yeah. It just won't stop. It just keeps on going off the screen. Yep. Look back, more names. And then... You, let's see, you put Lucas at chaotic neutral, right? Because generally, he wants to play, he wants to have a good time, but also, when he rolls bad... Oh. <laughs> Heaven forbid when Lucas... Rolls bad. Yeah, it's not a pretty sight. Oh my god. <clears throat> First of all, that man is that. dice cursed. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Like, okay, you just have to roll anything above a one and you live. And he rolled a one and died. He is, he's like Will Wheaton dice cursed. Yeah. He's one of the balancers, like Will Whedon, where they have to roll bad for us to roll well. Every time I roll divine intervention and get it, he dies somewhere down the line with his dice. So I think we got everyone. Um, I mean, we could put Neil on there, but I've never really played with Neil. I haven't played with him enough to really say one way or another. Because he's only been in like four or five sessions. 
I feel like you don't really know a player until like a few months of sessions. Once you have ever one moment, then you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> like it, honestly, it took me forever to get to know all of you guys as players. Same. Which honestly, I also took me a long time to remember all your names. I was like, ah, oh, yes, Cromwell. He did good tonight. I'm like, I mean, Ryan. That's his name. <laughs> and that was a very interesting situation to come into because at that at the point that you guys, that you and Lucas and Joe and Ashley had been there for a little bit, but when when all of you guys came in and really rounded out our group, it had been me and David just the two of us for so long. It was it was an adjustment at first, but not like a not a major one. Like it was it was good to have more players there. But it was weird because I, I I never like talking about this. It's it's always a little bit weird for me because again, D and D does not have a main character. But because my character basically started that campaign. Mine was in a way the main character of the campaign and that I, I always tried to strike that balance where Cromwell was not taking up too much of the spotlight. Well you also really worked for the plot because then it's like you're reluctant about it. So it works even if you're trying to avoid spotlight, it worked for the plot. Because Cromwell didn't want the spotlight. Neither did you. Yeah, I mean this this was a character who, for the longest time, when someone would ask who he was, he would say, I'm no one of consequence. <laughs> and then we named our town bet. Go knock. And then at some point I realized, wait a minute, by level 15, I probably am someone of consequence. <laughs> yeah. If you're in level, like a level three person, yeah, you can still say that, but at that point, you can find a dragon. When characters are making like DC 10 history checks to figure out who I am, I'm somewhat of consequence at this point. Yeah. Like, oh, you're that Cromwell guy. I bought your souvenir over here. <laughs> I guess we, we've kind of discussed this a little bit, and... You in in our group text brought up how your your Curse of Strahd campaign ended. Um, talk about talk about how that one ended a little bit, and then I, I kind of want to ask you some questions based on that. Okay, so spoilers for Curse of Strahd. You fight Strahd in Strahd's castle. <laughs> so we had snuck and we had recruited our allies. And we decided, we're going to go fight Strahd. We're going to sneak into his castle. We fought Frosty the Snowman. Which was a whole different thing. Because we had a, uh, we released an evil spirit, Ice Spirit. Delvin the Star Hate, I think. But our DM, there's no token for him. So our DM just put Frosty the Snowman there for us to fight him. So Vinny just had to do the whole fight in the Frosty Snowman voice. And very intimidating... I would shrink you. <laughs> Stuff like that. It's just like, Frosty, no. 
anyway, so we'd got, then we went to go fight Strahd, which also was funny because our paladin walked up to the balcony and was like, is that Strahd over there? And then zombies attacked us and we're up here flailing against these like CR one half zombies. We can't hit them for some reason. They can't hit us. And Strahd just looks up and is watching us <laughs> while we're fighting them. But then we fight him. We get him down. And he escapes down to his crypt. Because I think that's, that's a cutscene, basically. And there's a whole dungeon down there. Yeah? And there's like all these catacombs with just enemies everywhere. But it's like, hey, wizard, just cast Time Stop, take the Sun Sword, and walk over to his coffin and drop it in there with Mage Hand. Because <laughs> we had a map of castle. So I was like, and there were multiple great, like, set apart graves in that area. And I was like, it has to be the one down here because it's touching the ground and it's not fancy. It can't be the fancy ones. And yeah, so he time stopped and he just walk, walks over there through all the enemies and he's made hand to drop the sun sword in the straw chest through the coffin and he died. So Mage Hand is obviously the most powerful spell in D&D. We confirmed it there. And then we left. And the campaign was won. Now, the question I have for that, because, you know, we've, we've had a lot of stories like that. There was the Wish spell ending that boss fight. Uh, there, there was one time in my... Uh, I ran a convention one-shot for you guys. It was a one-shot I was doing at a convention where you stopped the big bad by uh, casting Force Cage on him. Do you find resolutions like that to be satisfying as a player, or is there a part of you who, who's like, wish we'd fought him? Uh, I, this is from your perspective. I was so happy that worked. I was just so happy. Because it's such a dumb idea of like, we're not even going to stab him. We're going to drop a sword onto him. <laughs> and I love that it works. I, I love it when a dumb plan happens and it works. And it is satisfying for me, even if we don't get to fight. Because, like, I'm very much a player in video games where it's like, if I can do this really weird, obscure tactic that lets me just avoid the final boss in a conversation or something, and the game ends, I'm happy. Even if I don't have a final boss fight. Because I did it the way I wanted to. And if it's a fun way to win, it's a fun way for me. So I get not everyone, ever, not everyone is like that. A lot of people do want a final boss. And I'm just like, I'm his here for shenanigans. And that's, I mean, that's something that every DM and every player needs to learn at some point is that when when your players work around the the thing you have planned and, and do something different than you expected, you know, just just because you didn't get to like throw the giant nasty thing you had at them doesn't mean that the campaign was ruined. And honestly, Austin, that's one of the best things you've done for me as a DM. And I wanna thank you for that. Well, that's mighty kind of you. 
I try my best. I just like to be around have fun. And it's absolutely fun playing and, and especially playing with you. Uh, is there is there anything that you would like to promote? Anything you want to uh, to discuss as we're uh, as we're wrapping up for this evening? Uh, I wish I wish I could say buy my book, but I haven't published it yet. But hopefully, up under hopefully not too soon, far from now, we you will be able to buy one of my books. What I'm working on is going pretty well right now. So as long as it can get published, probably just go through digital. On Amazon, so it'll be easier for people to buy. But hopefully, it'll be good. It's called the Headless the Headless Lighthouse. But that's about it. I don't have anything else to promote. Yeah, that's, just have that's fun. something. That's something that I've been looking into myself because I'm just about to finish my uh, my book about conventions. I'm on the home stretch with that, and so I've been looking into uh, self publishing on Amazon. Yeah, so I've done a lot of research for that. It's like I would prefer to go to a normal publisher for something, but I would I would do a different a different story for that. Which one that you I think you you probably dig a lot, but for this one I want to be able to get something out there with my name on it for which is like I wrote this. This is a reference material basically. Like I have something published, and Amazon seems the fastest and easiest way because you don't need to go through a whole bunch of stuff. And you can still get physical books printed of your book at Amazon, even if it's digital only, which is nice. And it's just easy because people have Amazon credit laying around. People don't mind paying five bucks for a digital book or whatever it is. Good luck on yours. Oh, thank you. And and good luck with the one that you're uh, you're working on right now. Yeah. Hopefully it finally works through. Yeah. You'd be surprised. All right, well, Sorry. Oh, just finish your thought. You, it, it's just funny how you'd be surprised at how old school some of the publishing companies are still with, like, you need to send your whole entire manuscript in paper with all these forms filled out in a package to send it to us, and we're getting back to you in six months. It's like, um, okay. <laughs> You think it would be a little bit faster sometimes, but it's not. See, I hear that, and in my cynical mind, I'm just like, oh, you just want something physical to throw in the trash can. <laughs> that's probably, that probably does happen a lot. But it's just, yeah, it's definitely a process, but I enjoy writing, so hopefully I'll get the people enjoy what I do write. That's the goal, it's just people enjoying stuff. Absolutely, and from what I've seen of that that world that you created and the the one one shot that I got to play in, uh, it it seems legitimately fascinating, and I would love to spend a little bit more time uh, reading it. Yep, hopefully, you will. Yeah. So, Austin, thank you once again for coming on the show, and uh, that's going to do it for us this time, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, until next time, may all your roles be critical hits.
Thank you so much for listening to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to us on Anchor.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to shout at me on social media, you can do so on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, I am at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg. And if you like miniatures and miniature painting, you can see all the work that I do on my Instagram, which is at Fenderboy771. Our theme song for Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard is Rumblin' by Trey Van Zant, who you can find at youtube.com slash C slash Trey Van Zant, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 License. Thank you so very much, and have a great day.